So, again, as I, backing up into this passage, I think part of what we see in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is really, um, Paul is, is really reflecting on what he wrote in Romans chapter 8, where he says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who are called, or excuse me, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8.28. And then Romans 8.29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be, that is, Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. So, this concept of foreknowledge, we, we touched on this um, earlier, um, but I don't think you guys were here, so catch up. We, we touched on this idea of foreknowledge, and, and the word literally means to choose beforehand, to know beforehand, um, and it implies some things that if we have time, I may jump into this idea of foreknowledge within the context of God dwelling outside of time, which I'll let you know ahead of time, I'm not sure I totally buy into, but I think it bears consideration. Um, But when we read passages such as what we read in chapter 9, we have to read it within, in the context and within the interpretive context of understanding what God has already declared about himself and what God has declared about his nature. And, and herein lies a principle that the, the Jews understand this, the Messianic Jews really understand this, and that is the principle of paradox. That is, those seemingly contradictory statements that God has declared, and to hold them in tension uh, as true, why are they true? Because the Bible declares them. So is, is the Bible true? Right, I, I think we all agree, yes, the Bible is true. So what we are dealing with is those true declarations that God has made through the prophets, through the apostles, that are seemingly contradictory. Now, even in this, I, I think it's Isaiah 55, which I would defer to, that where God declares that my ways are higher than your ways and that my ways are beyond your finding out. And, and so, um, with this, I think there's a lot of it, there, is, there really isn't any foreseeable reconciliation in some of these things. And that's why, at times, I try to resist systematic theology or systematic theological labels. Are you a Calvinist? Are you an Arminian? Are you a dispensationalist? Are you a covenant theologian? I try to resist those because my thought is, and I've only studied the Bible for a few years now, but but my thought is, that if you take any system of theology and you ask enough questions, you will eventually bring the position to a place where it cannot answer your question. Uh, There are certain things that are very true about the Scripture. There are certain things that because God will declare, for example, free will and, and 
and election. He declares them both. They are both true. They are both true. And, and we as Westerners, particularly after the Age of Enlightenment, which basically kicked the mystery of God out of man's thinking and figuring, believing that man could resolve all of his issues and, and, and uh, solve all his problems and, and the advancement of man, which has been wonderful in, in the field of science, right? But we tend to try to be able to, to grab a hold of these concepts and try to make sense of them. And again, to me, it's, it's, we neglect paradox. We neglect tension. Um, it is very clear in the Old Testament that God chose Israel. It's very clear. It is also very clear in the Old Testament but also very clear in the New Testament, as we've read here tonight, not all Israel is Israel. It is very clear that not every Israelite is saved. That's pretty clear to me. That challenges, in my opinion, other views, other theological perspectives. How can they be chosen but not saved? But that's pretty clear of how the Bible declares it. How can they be chosen and as the Old Testament said and it uses the particular phrase at least 22 times in the Old Testament you are cut off from your people. I didn't have a chance to count them. I think it's over a hundred where that concept is addressed in the Old Testament scriptures particularly in Torah. Now If Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, now is he? Yes, he is. Then I tend to believe that the way that he deals with man, and I know there are other groups who disagree with this, uh, but I tend to believe that the way that he deals with man is consistent all the way through the history of humanity. We see grace in the Garden of Eden. We see Grace with Noah, or the old King James, I really like the way it says it, Noah found favor with God. Noah found grace with God, and he responded to God's leading to do what? Build the ark for how long? 120 years. Quite a construction project. But he didn't have any Makita power tools, so what do you expect, right? So, what you are, we are seeing here in this first part of Romans 9, I only brought one Bible tonight. I must, I was, anyway, anyway, we're going to put it on the checklist. Anyway, what we have here is, is, is a distinction is made between the physical descendants of Abraham and the children of promise. They are not one and the same as what we're seeing here. And it is addressing the statement that Paul made in verse 6 when he says, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. I covered that on Sunday. But then he gives the example 
First of all, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Given to us uh, in, in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 21. Now, what's significant about the fact that Isaac, it is in Isaac that your seed will be called? Who also is alive when, Isaac, when God says that about Isaac? Ishmael. Technically, Ishmael's the firstborn, which is huge in Jewish culture. Let me just throw this for you as well. Esau, which we will look at in just a minute, because that's where I'm really going to land tonight. I'm just getting warmed up. All right, Esau was the firstborn. Um, I knew I forgot something. Okay, so anyway, Paul is using the example of Isaac as the child of promise. Now, is Ishmael a child of? Is Ishmael a child of Abraham? Absolutely. Did God claim? I don't have the the references in front of me, but did God promise to bless him? Yes, he did. God also told the Israelites, and I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 4, that you leave them alone. They are your brothers. You're not to attack them. You're not to bother them. You're not to to harass them in any way. They are your brothers. They have been given the land of Seir, S-E-I-R. Yeah, they've been given the land of Seir. You leave them alone. Now, God holds them responsible later. That is the Edomites who were the descendants of Esau. Have I lost anybody yet? He holds the Edomites responsible because they did not allow Israel to pass through their land. And they were not kind to their brother. That's the That's the word that God uses between these two people groups, the Edomites and Israel. He calls them brothers. So, but he is making a distinction that the promised seed, and what's important about the seed, anybody? It's of God, but it is whom? It's Jesus Christ, okay? The promised seed, can the promised seed come through Esau, or Ishmael and Isaac? Well, maybe, but the reality is there's a lineage. There's a lineage that God is making a covenant with. Could the Edomites convert and become Jews? Yes, they could have. By and large, did they? No, they didn't. If you read the book of Obadiah, basically God holds them very responsible and he basically is going to obliterate them. That's the descendants of Esau, not of Ishmael. He even promised to bless Ishmael. So, so what you hear, have here in this particular passage is the focus on the Jewish nation as a whole in their capacity to be God's people, to be Israel, God's people, governed by God. And what he's going to begin to introduce here also is this idea of the remnant. The idea of the remnant that is common throughout the Old Testament that is mentioned here in chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. I don't want to take the time to look at, but also in the book uh, or in Romans 11, verses 1 through 5. So he's going to start to talk about this idea of the remnant. Um, and it is a, uh, 
Again, it's a theme that runs throughout the, the Old Testament as well. Um, so it tells us here that it is those who are the children of the flesh. Who are the children of the flesh? Any descendant of Abraham who descended from him through natural means, Jew and also some Gentiles. Because remember, Abraham had many other kids after Sarah died, um, and he had many other kids. So, and they, they, they were not the children of the promise. It doesn't mean they could not inherit salvation. Just like we as Gentiles, we are not Jewish. We are not of the tribe of Abraham, but according to Galatians, because we believe we, Abraham is our father, who was the father of all who believe. Galatians chapter 3. So, Let me finish this, and maybe that'll clear that up, because I, I'm, I'm trying to, it's a good question. I'm just, yes, some of Isaac's line, yes, they are the children of promise, and no, some of them are not. Okay? But again, God is, what Paul is doing here is he's building a case for all things work together for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose or plan. All right? That's, that's what all of this rests on. So you will have those that are descendants of Isaac through Jacob who believe and trust in Christ. Therefore, they are of the children of promise. You will also have descendants of, of Jacob who do not believe. Not all Israel is Israel. You will have Edomites, descendants of Esau, who will believe. You will have Edomites, descendants of Esau, who will not believe. Okay, so, excuse me, while it's not abundantly clear, but let's, let's get into this. He's talk, making distinction between a natural people, the p- children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. All right, we looked at this a bit on Sunday. For this is the word of the promise, that at that time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Genesis 18, remember when when. He told, God appeared to Abraham, told uh, Abraham that at this time when I come back here next year, Sarah will have a son. And what did Sarah do? She laughed. Of course, of course, Abraham laughed in the 17th chapter. So there, anyway. Um, and so we could say, well, Ishmael was not a godly man. And, and you might have a case for that. But J, uh, Isaac was a godly man. And you might have a case for that. So he further delineates that when he mentions Esau and Jacob. Verse 10, not only this, but when Rebekah, Rebekah is Isaac's wife, had conceived by one man, even by her father is Isaac. Remember, they're twins. So what this is really saying is one act of conception for both, both people, both boys. 
For the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil that the purpose, there is there it is again, that word purpose that is so important, whom God knew he uh, 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 called according to what? His purpose or plan, same Greek word. Um, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works but of him who calls. And it is said to Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger, which was a 180-degree flip from the custom of that day. Right? It was the firstborn who received the, the bulk of the inheritance and the birthright. Um, and as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Okay. So what this is talking about is the children of promise, just going to quick repeat, the children of promise, the line of Isaac, not Ishmael, the line of Jacob, who becomes whom? Israel, not Esau. So Esau, who is the older, is rejected. Jacob, the younger, is made the heir of the promise. Um, Jacob I have loved Esau I have hated what in the world is he talking about so I did some digging did a lot of digging I've got four pages which we're not going to be able to get through, and I want to get through this in one sitting, okay? Did a lot of reading. There's a guy named Harry Ironside. You like Harry Ironside? He's a Plymouth brethren, okay? Let me read to you what Harry Ironside said about this verse. There is no question here of predestination to heaven or reprobation to hell. In fact, eternal issues do not really come in through this chapter, although they are implied. We are not told here, nor anywhere else, that before children are born, it is God's purpose to send one to heaven and another to hell. This passage has entirely to do with privilege here on earth. And I thought, I thought that was a very good assessment. I actually did some reading on Ironside. I got, I got interested, and he had a remarkable life. He moves to L.A. as an 11-year-old. There's no Sunday school, so what does he do? He gets together with the neighborhood kids. He gets these burlap sacks, and they sew at least 100 of them together to make a little tent for the Sunday school that he was going to start, in, I guess, in his backyard. There's no adult to teach the Sunday school, so that's when he begins teaching ministry. I thought, wow, what a, what a bold. And this is before he was born again, by the way. Uh, he got saved when he was 13. But God had his hand on him, Okay. Um, so that's how he interprets this. So, J- Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. It's from the book of Malachi chapter 1. We're going to turn there in a moment. All right. Um, I don't, and I, I did some digging with the Messianics because they're, they're, they understand, they, they've got some good concepts on some of this. Uh, not only the idea of paradox, but in recognition that this is a Semitic idiom. Semitic idiom. 
idiom. What's an idiom? It is a phrase or a figure of speech. I'm trying to, I was trying to think of a nice southern one. In, in, um, you might have heard a few of them when you guys were back there. Um, but the only ones I can think about that just have come to my head just in the split second, I cannot repeat here. But, uh, but I spent a little time in the South, but not much. But, but it's a, a Jewish idiom because in Jewish thought, and we see this in the Gospels, we see this at times in Jesus' teaching, um, there is exaggeration, another word is hyperbole, but there is exaggeration to emphasize the point. Exaggeration to emphasize the point. And so in the Jewish mind, when he reads, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. A Jew would interpret that, Jacob I have loved, and he has found favor with me. Esau, I don't love as much. Or he does not have the special purpose, or he does not have the special plan, or he will not receive the special blessing. Remember, Jacob took what? The birthright and the blessing from him. Now it's interesting because he did it through deception. See, this this boggles my mind, guys. Was it something that God determined before that either one were born? Yes. Maybe that that might be a step that might be a bridge too far. So you have to be careful with idiomatic language. Well, Esau, which is interesting that you say that because foreknowledge. Because when Esau came back from the field and he wanted a bowl of beans, Jacob said, sell me your birthright. What did Esau say? What good is my birthright if I'm dead? Okay. Um, This idea of foreknowledge, okay, I'm, I didn't want to open this bag yet. So this is a side trip, a slight side trip, and if it's difficult, we're going to blame it on Ken tonight, okay? But uh, this idea of foreknowledge could be explained because God does not live, does not exist, if you will, just within this time-space continuum. And there is a theory that makes sense, but I'm, I, I, I don't think I'd bet the farm yet. And it's actually been articulated by a lot of different people over the years. One of them, C.S. Lewis, who described God dwelling in the eternal now. Because he is outside of time, the view is he experiences past present and future 
all at once. Because he is not in our time-space continuum. I don't know if that makes sense to me, let alone to any of you. But, uh, Clay is nodding his head, so he's with me. Or he's with the idea. <laughs> anyway, and that does make sense. And if that does, if that is true, that might explain a little bit more about foreknowledge. And calling. And predetermining. Whole chapter on it in this book called Congruent Election. And it's a very real possibility. Um, I need at least an hour to really unpack what I just said. So I'm just going to throw it out there and, and continue on, Okay. Okay, the relative use of hate, the word hate. Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone come to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So is Jesus calling you to hate your mother, father, your wife, your children so that you can be his disciple? B doesn't think so. Ken's not sure. No, I'm kidding. He's, he's not called. So the, the word, even though we associate it pretty uh, concretely, because when I think, when I say, man, I, I, I hate doing that, right? Whatever that is. That means I, I'm going to look for a way not to do whatever that is, right? We, we, we think of that word much more concretely and much more in a black and white sense than the Jews did. He's using this word hate, Jesus is, as a comparison. He's not calling us to hate anybody. Um, Malachi chapter 1. Yes, that would be an exaggeration to make a point. Yep, an obvious hyperbole. Also, yes, because contrast is a a, a good way to teach. Malachi chapter 1, this is how the last book in the Old Testament starts. Page 840, if you have, it's right before Matthew. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It's interesting because he addresses that to Israel. Where is Israel at this point? I.e. the northern kingdom. They don't exist. He's talking to the people of God is what he's talking to. Judah exists. But the northern kingdom had been dispersed when, when God spoke to Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. 
and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be wicked, uh, excuse me, they shall be called territory of the wickedness and the people against them whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now, Edom, which means red, which was the name also that was given to Esau, they were in, again, they really, they really made God mad when they would not allow Israel to pass through their territory. But, and I, and I, I boy, I, I just flat out, I needed like four more hours to really study this. But Edom at times was subjected by Israel. At times they were allies with Israel. And in their subjection by Israel, at times they tried to rebel against Israel. Because it was said that what? The older will serve the younger. And finally, God was so fed up with them that he pro- it's in the book of Obadiah. That's really what the book of Obadiah is all about. Which means red, by the way. Um, about God prophesying their demise because they were unfaithful. But again, way back in Deuteronomy, he told Israel, leave them alone. Don't fight with them. They are your brothers. So he held them in a sense of special regard. Um, So Malachi is looking back on the two brothers. But also Malachi is looking forward to their posterity. Israel or Jacob, was given all those things that we read about in the earlier part of chapter 9. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Of whom the fathers are the fathers, that is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So, we, we, we read this earlier in the book of, uh, of Romans chapter 2. Um, I've got to find it. Maybe I won't find it. Of the advantage of being a Jew. Verse chapter 3, what advantage then is the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumstance, a circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. And what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Verse 4, indeed let God be true and every man a liar. He now is answering that fuller here in Romans 9. But he was saying in Romans chapter 3 that to be a Jew was an advantage in many ways, particularly because what was given to them was the oracles or the word or the message or the communication from Yahweh. So 
Um, let's get back to Romans. Boy, I wish I had it in my other Bible. Any questions so far? Paul is quoting from Malachi. And I'm not getting the sense, nor did anyone that I read got the sense that Paul is using what we just read in Malachi as a midrash. In other words, a, a scripture that he brings into the discussion to say this is what God is doing. Remember what I said about a midrash on Sunday? A midrash is where you put 10 Jews in a room and end up with 12 different opinions, okay? Because that's what, it's, it's this back and forth of discussion of what they believe the, the Bible is saying. In other words, how they interpret. Uh, and sometimes Jesus did this actually. In the, he would take some Old Testament passages and interpret them in a, in a form of a metaphor. In other words, symbolically instead of a literal interpretation. The literal interpretation of Malachi is that God is saying to Israel, I, all you have to do is compare how I have treated you compared to how I've treated the Edomites, and you will know that I love you. Because in Malachi, it's a, it's a polemic. It's an argument that they have with God. They're actually fighting with God, and the prophet Malachi is trying to address these things. Um, and, and God says to them in verse 6 of Malachi 1, A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? If you've read Malachi before, you can, you can get the sense. It's, it, God is indicting them, and it's a big argument where, where God is saying, you are not faithful people. And he's saying it to Israel, not to Edom. But he's answering that question. How, you, you say, I don't love you? Let me show you how I have loved you. You've descended from the child of the promise, Isaac, and then Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. That's the context of what, is, what, what Paul is mining out here uh, from Malachi 1 and bringing it into Romans 9. But what you still have here is this concept of an election. But then again... If the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, that is either true or that's not true. That is a clear definitive statement that Jesus made to Nicodemus or he was just pulling Nicodemus' leg, one of the two. And so we have to hold that into the, that, the context of what we are reading here. Did God choose Jacob and his lineage over Esau's? Yes, he did. But this is not, and here's another thing, again, read it. It's a good book. It's hard, but anyway. Um, is that a bug? Did you get it? 
Okay, I hope you got it. Okay. Um, there, and again, I'm not 100% sold on this either, but there is a view that God elect has two forms of election. The corporate election of Israel, which was to be the line through which the Messiah would come and to fulfill the promises to Abraham. I'm looking for a verse here that I might have stuck in here. It's later on in the book of Romans, where it's in Romans 11. I can probably find it. Where that... Romans eleven twenty eight. It's it's talking about Israel, and he says concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Paul tells this church, tells the church, Jew and Gentile alike, concerning the gospel, Israel are national Israel, not spiritual Israel. National Israel is an enemy for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there is this idea of a corporate election. The Messiah had to come through some line. And even that line was fouled up. If you've read much about the kings. Even that line was essentially disqualified. That's why you have two different genealogies in the Gospels. Because the human line goes not through Solomon, from David to Solomon, but the human line goes from David to Nathan, one of his other sons, but it is still a kingly line. Because Jeconiah, who was a descendant of Solomon, was so disobedient to God that God put a curse on his house and said, no one in your house will sit on the throne. So the human line of Mary is through Nathan. But the kingly line through that Joseph was a part of, which is the legal line according to Jewish understanding, was through Solomon. So the blood curse, if you want to say, was, uh, was avoided by the virgin birth, among other things. Any, any thoughts? I think it does. Verse 27 here in chapter 9. Is Isaiah cries out, Though the number of, ch- of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. A small portion. Um, Yeah, which yeah, which puzzles me. 
But if you, if you believe in this idea of God outside of time, where he is experiencing the past, present, future as one present, then it makes sense. Kind of. It is quite a story, but, you know, the, the, the thing is, in verse 19, will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? That is, God find fault for who has resisted his will. But indeed, O oh man, you are, are, are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed to him say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? So, in other words, it, it, what he's saying here is that you can't question God's sovereign plan. Or at least it's not a good idea. How's that? So, um, yeah, so, yeah, so is there unrighteousness with God? Not according to this. Is there unrighteousness? Verse 14. Chapter 9, 14. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. You just misunderstood what I asked. Yeah. Yeah. Right. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Okay, what is he talking about? What is the context of what this verse is, or where this verse is from? That's an important thing to get as well. Exodus 33. Let's turn there. Exodus 33, which is, to me, one of the most fascinating scriptures passages in all of the Old Testament. Um, although I still like Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness better. Okay, that's my, my favorite. Okay. Um, Exodus 33 happens after Moses was on the mountain, out at Sinai. And what did the people of Israel do? They made a golden calf. And so it made God mad. And uh, God essentially tells Moses, I'm going to blot them all out. I'm going to start all over with you. And Moses intercedes. In verse 31 of chapter 32, Moses said, he said, he returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot out out of your book, which which you have written. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at verse 1 and verse 2 of of chapter 9. By the way, I'm almost caught up, so it is... It's on the web if you want to listen to them. Um, And 
God asked of Moses, essentially, what is it that you want? And Moses calls him up, up on the mountain. And because Moses had asked of God, in verse 17 of chapter 33 and in 18, says, so the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace, grace, hello, in my sight, and know, and I know you by name. And so Moses said to God, please show me your glory. Now think about that. I could, I could spend all night just sitting in silence thinking about that. So God said to Moses in verse 19, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see my face and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me and you will stand on the rock. And so it shall be that while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by and then I will take away my hand and you will see my back but my face shall not be seen and so this is where you have this incredible incredible scene on Mount Sinai in in chapter 34 where it says in verse 5 the Lord descends from a cloud and stood with him that is Moses proclaimed the name of the Lord and the Lord uh, passed before and proclaimed the Lord the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression of sin, but by no means clearing the chosen. No, it says guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God is declaring his name and when God declares his name it's best to understand that God declares his nature. His nature. And in his nature he says I will have compassion upon mercy upon whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion upon whom I have compassion. So God is saying this the context here is important. And to import this context into Romans 9. God is saying here that he will have mercy upon whom he's going to have mercy. And compassion whom he has compassion. After he's already said, I'm going to wipe out the entire nation of Israel and start all over with you, Moses. And Moses intercedes for him. And he forgives the nation of Israel. Even though the transgressors, remember what happened to the transgressors? 3,000 of them were put to death that day by the, by the tribe of Levi. And it is from this place that God moves forward in grace with the nation of Israel. So what is underscored here in Romans 9 goes back to what was declared in Romans 8 that all things work together for good to those who love God 
to those who are called according to God's plan. It's talking about the sovereignty and the election of God's plan in furthering his work to eventually do what? Bring forth the Messiah into the world. It's not talking about individual election, either elections into uh, salvation or election into damnation. And so that, that's what needs to be understood in looking at this passage.